Genesis 26, 1 through 11. Now there was a famine in the land, besides the former famine that was in the days of Abraham. And Isaac went to Gerar, to Abimelech, the king of the Philistines. And the Lord appeared to him and said, Do not go down to Egypt. Dwell in the land which I shall tell you. Sojourn in this land, and I will be with you and will bless you. For to you and your offspring I will give all these lands, and I will establish the oath that I swore to Abraham your father. I will multiply your offspring as the stars of the heaven, and will give your offspring all these lands. And in your offspring all the nations of the earth shall be blessed, because Abraham obeyed my voice and kept my charge, my commandments, my statutes, and my laws. So Isaac settled in Gerar. When the men of the place asked him about his wife, he said, She's my sister, for he feared to say my wife, thinking, Lest the men of the place shall kill me because of Rebekah, because she was attractive in appearance. When he had been there a long time, Abimelech, king of the Philistines, looked out a window and saw Isaac laughing with Rebekah, his wife. So Abimelech called Isaac and said, Behold, she's your wife. How then could you say she's my sister? Isaac said to him, Because I thought, lest I die because of her. Abimelech said, What is this you have done to us? One of the people might have easily lain with your wife, and you would have brought guilt upon us. So Abimelech warned all the people, saying, Whoever touches this man or his wife shall surely be put to death. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Lord God, we come to you today with, frankly, just an odd passage in our series of passages here. God, I pray that you would enlighten our hearts, God, that you would illumine your word. Holy Spirit, work in our hearts. Teach us what we should hear today. Teach us what we should know. Lord, guide me as I preach this passage today. I pray that you would teach us uh, to be faithful, to obey in the ways that you've called us to. You are good to us, Father. We pray these things in your powerful name. Amen. Well, you've heard the phrase, like father, like son. This saying rings particularly true in my family in one specific area. If you have had a conversation with any man with the last name Barber, then you know it is likely to be a long one. It's also likely to be filled with poor humor. I, and I'm talking about like the lowest common denominator dad jokes, the, the worst you can think of. <laughs> Lots of amens. Hey, um, <laughs> if there's a pun or there's something that's even close to a pun, we are going to go for it. Now, some of us have figured out how to handle this responsibility better than others. I'm not saying I have, but for instance, I have taken the tactic of just leaning into it. I know the joke is going to be bad, but I'm just going to do it anyways. And everybody's just going to suffer with me. We're going to have a good time. My sons, they are also perfecting this craft. My father, my uncle, all of my cousins, we relish to come together and offer some tasty morsel of bad humor whenever we are together. There's a lot of smiles over here because they know it, because my family is sitting right there. And it's not just there, it's all the way down to the horse laugh we do when somebody gives a really good one. It sounds like this. (laughs) That's what it sounds like. You've heard it. And then that's also followed with a quick look look around for approval to make sure that everybody knows that we made the joke, right? You can always tell that there is a barber man around because someone is going to be laughing. Our passage today is kind of like that, like father, like son. 
Even, this, even though this phrase, it may be used to just generally show some common traits between generations within a family, we see some very specific and profound ways that this is true between Abraham and Isaac. So as we take a look at this passage, we're going to look at it in a series of movements. First, we're going to see this movement where faith affects generations. And second, we're going to see a movement where sin wrecks generations. But in order to see these movements, we need to understand some of what has gone on before. We need to start by remembering Isaac's story. He is the promised heir of Abraham, the man of faith, the man who was covenanted with Yahweh, the great I am, the very creator of the universe. And the Lord has protected this promise to Abraham of redemption through his descendants. And Isaac, he was the fruit of that covenant. So this is who Isaac is. After Isaac's mother had died and Abraham had grown old, Isaac found a wife in Rebekah, and they had two sons. And the line of God's promise, it continued to another generation. And then Isaac's father dies. Abraham dies. And Rebekah, she's already willingly accepted this role of the matriarch of the family when they first got married, but now Isaac has the mantle of the patriarch. He's the new head of the chosen people of God. Abraham's household is now Isaac's household. He's been mourning his father's death with his half-brothers, and he's been living near the land of his brother Ishmael at Beer Lahiroi. And this brings us to our text today. The passing of a father and a new patriarch, the son of promise living in the land of the brother of sin. So let's start with verse 1. Verse 1. Now there was a famine in the land, besides the former famine that was in the days of Abraham, and Isaac went to Gerar to Abimelech, king of the Philistines. So our text starts off with an immediate problem. There's a famine in the land. This is not the famine from the days of Abraham, but Moses, the author of Genesis, feels that this detail is important, and we'll find out why. So we've already had this famine in the land that's back in Genesis 12, when Abraham was in the early days of his patriarchy. So this is a story of beginnings and opportunity. It's a defining moment for Isaac. See, references to places and past events and people, they're vitally important. They remind us of things. And this is how the Bible works. And that brings us to our first movement. That's all the context. That's all the backstory. And now we're in our first movement. Faith affects generations. So if you're a note taker, you can take that one down. As the new patriarch, the provider for his household, Isaac has a huge problem. There is a famine. If the people of his household cannot eat, then they will die. As leader, it's his problem to solve. But Isaac, he actually has an even greater problem than the famine. When his father died, Isaac was given everything Abraham could give him. He blessed him. And in this, he was made the patriarch of his family. And yet, the most important thing to happen to our young patriarch has not happened yet. So let's read on. Verse 2. And the Lord appeared to him 
and said, Do not go down to Egypt. Dwell in the land of which I shall tell you. This very same God who used to speak to Abraham now speaks to Isaac. We have to understand how profound this is in the first place, that the God of the universe would transcend, or condescend rather, to appear and speak to a mere man. And yet here he is. Not only has he spoken to Isaac now, but he issues a command, an opportunity for Isaac to obey, to dwell in the land which God will tell him. But God doesn't stop there. He has a greater purpose in mind for this meeting. As incredible as this meeting with Yahweh has already been, this command is still not the most important thing to happen to him. The Isaac's greatest need at this point is the blessing of God, his covenant promise. Last week, when we looked at this passage, or at the passage, there was a passing of the torch between Abraham and Isaac in chapter 25. And the scriptures say that God blessed Isaac. What we need to understand about that passage is that it's meant to give us a snippet about what happened. That portion of chapter 25 was a genealogy. It was not a chronology. It's not all in order. But our passage goes into detail about that event, God's blessing of Isaac. So Abraham has died and Isaac has received his inheritance from him, but now God is bestowing upon him his true inheritance. Think of this passage as an exploded view of that event. Up until now, he is the patriarch, but he has not had the same reassurance that his father was given. His greatest need is not food and shelter from famine, it's a blessing. And not one from his earthly father. That won't do. He needs one from, as Ephesians 3, 14 through 15 says, the father from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named. Without this covenant blessing, it doesn't matter how many children Isaac has or what son his personal blessing goes to, without Yahweh, the whole thing falls apart. But now we see Yahweh appearing directly to him, giving him direction, and intending to preserve him. But the Lord continues to speak. We pick back up in verse 3. Sojourn in this land, and I will be with you and will bless you. For to you and to your offspring I will give all these lands, and I will establish the oath that I swore to Abraham your father. I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and will give to your offspring all these lands. And in your offspring, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed, because Abraham obeyed my voice and kept my charge, my commandments, my statutes, and my laws. How sweet at this moment this must have been for Isaac to hear. I will be with you, and I will bless you. And the resemblance here to the words that were spoken to Abraham before are striking. In fact, many of the words are almost verbatim ripped straight from Genesis 12 and Genesis 22. So Moses, he's begging us to look back and remember. In Genesis 12, just before Abraham goes to Egypt, he received his initial call and blessing from God. And in Genesis 22, Abraham was commanded by the Lord to sacrifice this very same Isaac. And Abraham obeyed the Lord, yet the Lord stopped him. And this is what is said. 
Genesis 22:15 through 18 says, And the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, listen, I will surely bless you. And I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore. And your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies, and in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. See, Isaac has heard this blessing before. He had heard this covenant before. He was there that day. His father had been willing to obey Yahweh even unto sacrificing his son that day. So Isaac knew immediately what obedience looked like because he saw it in his father. In fact, the faith of Abraham displayed in his obedience was so great that the Lord said to Isaac, Obey me like your father by simply dwelling in this land, and I will bless you because Abraham obeyed my voice, kept my charge, my commandments, my statutes, my laws. Why would God make such an unbreakable promise like that? If you look back to Genesis 22, again, at the beginning of the passage we just read, God says, by myself I have sworn. So the Lord is saying, I will not break this covenant. Obey me. Not, I will not break this covenant because you obey me. By himself, he has sworn. And how can Isaac know what obedience looks like? Look to your father, Abraham, God says. Look to your father. Isaac is reminded of his father's example of what it looks like to be in covenant with Yahweh which becomes so vitally important. So what does Isaac do? What is his response? Well, we find it in verse 6 of our passage today. So Isaac settled in Gerar. Like father, like son. He does what the Lord asks of him. He obeys Yahweh. And that leads us to our first truth that I want to look at today. This first movement. Faith affects generations. The faith of Abraham displayed in his obedience is the same faith displayed in his son, Isaac. The Lord recalls Isaac's mind to the obedience of Abraham. It's almost like a challenge God is setting out as he lays out the terms of his covenant with this new generation, this new patriarch. It's as if to say, this is what covenant faithfulness looks like, Isaac. You want to know what faith looks like? Look to your father. And we can take something away from this as well. Not one of us who are parents can guarantee that our children will know the Lord, will love him and obey him. We had a sober reminder of that last week with the story of Jacob and Esau. But we can choose to live a life of obedience in front of them. We can pray that the Lord would show himself faithful to us in the blessings he gives. We can raise them to fear the Lord, to train them in righteousness. And for those who don't have kids or don't have them yet, the rest of us can use your help. You can learn now by looking at the godly parents that you had, if you had them and you were blessed with them. Or you can look to those around you in the church to learn from, to teach you, 
to show you what the goodness and the mercies of God look like and how to obey him. Be an example of the kind of obedience that Abraham displayed in his willingness to sacrifice his own son and do that in front of our children. We desperately need that. So I have two applications for us from this section. First, look to the faithful generations before you. Heed the words of the Lord and look to those in the past. I have been blessed immensely to live in a family of many faithful men for many generations. This is my grandfather's Greek New Testament Bible. Papa used to teach men to be pastors in Africa, and that was most of my childhood. I remember watching a VHS time after time about my grandma and my papa and the missions work that they were doing. And they would come home every few years for a short time to see family and to rest. And then they would leave. They would go back out onto the missions field. They were faithful and they were obedient to the Lord. And because of this, they miss most of the life of their grandchildren. And we miss them too. Their obedience had a cost. But their faithfulness meant that the kingdom of God expanded both abroad and in our homes. I do not take lightly how much their faithfulness has affected me. I am thankful for it. I would never trade that. Look to the faith of the generations before you. Our second application today. Be the faithful generation to those who come after you. Many of you do not have a faithful family to look to, and so you had to look elsewhere. Thank the Lord that those people are in our lives. So here's my challenge to you and really to all of us. Be that for someone. There are so many who need someone to display true faith to them. And this doesn't necessarily mean that we're talking about kids here either. Sometimes the next generation is just someone you know that doesn't know what it looks like to be faithful yet. They may even be older than you. However, I cannot overemphasize the impact that your faith has in your home. Parents, your children will see your faith. Your sons and your daughters will know what to value by what you spend your time on, what you talk about, what you spend your money on, and how you spend and who you spend your time with. So ask yourself what your obedience looks like. That's exactly the kind of obedience that you can expect to see from your children. Which is a perfect segue into this next movement of our passage. See, sin wrecks generations. In verse 7, we see, When the men of the place asked him about his wife, he said, She's my sister. For he feared to say my wife, thinking, Lest the men of the place should kill me because of Rebekah because she was attractive in appearance. And this all sounds shockingly familiar, doesn't it? It should. 
Remember how we talked about how important the names and places and events are? Let's look back to the, to the first verse of our passage today. Let's look at that and let that set our stage for the second movement. In verse 1, it says, Now there was a famine in the land, besides the former famine that was in the days of Abraham. So we need to remember what happened with Abraham's famine. Abraham and his household, they went down to Egypt because there was food there. But Abraham feared that Pharaoh would kill him on account of his wife's beauty. So Abraham lied to Pharaoh, and this is what he said. That's my sister. This turned into curses for Pharaoh, and the truth was revealed to him. So he released Abraham and his wife and gave him riches. And early in our, earlier in our passage, God commands Isaac not to go to Egypt. And that might sound kind of insignificant, but we have to understand that that contrast is intentional. God seems to be giving Isaac an opportunity here and a little help along the way to steer clear of the sins of his father. Let's revisit this first verse again, the second half. And Isaac went to Gerar, to Abimelech, king of the Philistines. So first we have a call back to Abraham's lie to Pharaoh about his wife. And now we see that Isaac has gone to the land of Gerar, not only to that land, but specifically to Abimelech, king of the Philistines. And this is also important because back in Genesis 20, Abraham was living in this very land of Gerar and was fearful of Abimelech believing that he had no fear of the Lord and fearing that he would be killed on account of his wife's beauty, Abraham lies again and says, that's my sister. So God intervenes in a dream and warns Abimelech, yet Abimelech ends up rightly fearing the Lord and vindicating Sarah and her honor. It's another close call for Abraham. Abraham, the father of Isaac, lied about his wife which put her and the promise of God in jeopardy twice. And here with Isaac, we are reminded of this by the mention of this famine and this interaction with Abimelech. Now, it is likely that just like Isaac's famine is not Abraham's famine, that this is probably not the same Abimelech. Rather, Abimelech is the title of the king of the Philistines. Just like there were a bunch of pharaohs, there were a bunch of Abimelechs. Providentially, though, that doesn't make this less important. God seems to be using it as an intentional play on words to drive this idea of fathers and generations home. See, Abimelech's name, translated literally, means my father the king. Abraham, translated literally, means father of many. There's a tale of two fathers here. Isaac has a choice in the land of Abimelech whether he chooses truth and honor as the Abimelech of old, fearing Yahweh, or he can choose the path of Abraham, fearing man and lying about his wife. He chose the path of Father Abraham and lies like father, like son, but this time in the worst way. To the original reader, these connections, they would have just been jumping off the page, but we've had to do a little bit of work to get there because we live in a different time. And we've seen some similarities here, but what are the differences between Isaac and Abraham? Where Abraham tries to use his own means to protect the promises of God, he actually endangers it because his wife 
was yet to bear him a child. But Isaac is not trying to protect his future offspring. He's already had them by now. Where Abraham was likely trying to keep his family alive by sinful means, thinking he was protecting God's promise from failure, Isaac is simply trying to save his own skin, and he offers his wife as payment. In addition to this, his lie is actually greater. Abraham, as weird as it sounds to us today, could also play a little word game because Sarah was indeed his half-sister. So his lie was technically true. It was still deceptive, though. He sought to use a little bit of truth to conceal the whole truth. But with Isaac, he has nothing. There's no game to play. There's no technicality to use. Rebecca is not his sister in any way. But maybe, just maybe, Isaac was thinking, my dad got away with it, and he did it twice. And I'm still here, aren't I? So Isaac lies. And what happens as a result? Verse 8. When he had been there a long time, Abimelech, king of the Philistines, looked out of a window and saw Isaac laughing with Rebekah, his wife. So Abimelech called Isaac and said, Behold, she's your wife. How then could you say she is my sister? Isaac said to him, Because I thought lest I die because of her. Abimelech said, What is this you have done to us? One of the people might easily have lain with your wife, and you would have brought guilt upon us. So Abimelech warned all the people, saying, Whoever touches this man or his wife shall surely be put to death. And what's interesting here is that Abimelech, in our passage, he has no sign from God, no dream, no prophecy or anything to discover Isaac's lie. And this is, again, is different than Abraham's. Apparently, the lie was so bad and so half-hearted, despite being able to keep it up for a while, all Abimelech had to do was look out a window and he sees them laughing together. This word laughing, it isn't precisely laughing like ha-ha or the horse laugh from earlier. But, kind of funny enough, it comes from the same root as Isaac's name, because remember, Isaac's name means laughter. It carries this idea of enjoyment, of laughter and rejoicing, generally just having a good time. So what the Bible is getting at here is that they aren't knowing each other, in the biblical sense, we'll leave it at that. But they are, to put it delicately, enjoying each other. So Abraham, or so Abimelech, rather, he sees Isaac and who they claim to be his sister having a good time out the window. And the gig is up. Isaac and Rebekah are not good liars. So this Abimelech, just like the Abimelech of old, he actually does the right thing and he confronts this Hebrew sojourner about his lie, and he instructs all his people not to touch either Isaac or his wife. And you have to think by now that those Yahweh worshipers, they have a reputation that they can't be trusted, right? In fact, there are some scholars that believe that this Abimelech needed no divine help to discover this lie because he was expecting this from Isaac. He is Abraham's son after all, isn't he? And that's, the kind, that's kind of the point of this whole second movement of the story. Sin wrecks generations. We really want to think that our sins are private and personal. We want to believe that what we do has very limited effects. But our passage today shows that this is not true. 
At the very least, there are effects down the road. It seems that Moses is belaboring this point, that Isaac is sinning just like his dad. And we see this in our own lives as well, don't we? Your son's lying problem is the same lying problem you had as a kid, or maybe the one you have as an adult. Your obsessive need for stuff or consumption or comfort, material possessions, becomes your daughter's insatiable desire for something else. Dad's alcoholism becomes dad's abuse, which becomes the child's alcoholism and becomes the child's abuse. And on and on, the chain of sin goes, many times getting worse with each generation. Or perhaps we talk about spiritual generations within the church. Maybe you've accidentally passed on your ability to frame gossip as a prayer request. Maybe you've taught someone how to use scripture to hide their sin rather than repent of it. Or maybe you've made God's word a second-class issue, caring more about a relationship with someone than speaking hard truth into the sins that are in their life. Because it would just be too hard. You might lose that friendship. These are real fears that we have, church. Maybe, maybe you're on the other side of this equation. And you are actually the victim of these generational sins. You were the child with the alcoholic dad, the abusive mom, the gossiping prayer request was about you. Or the bludgeoning Bible in the hands of someone you loved left you scarred. When you look at the past generation, you see pain. That brings us to our first application for this movement. Learn from the sinful generation before you. Don't let the sins of the past go wasted. We know that God works all things together for the good of those whom he calls according to his purposes, as we were reminded last week from Romans. We've been given an opportunity to look at the sins of our fathers and break the chains of generational sins. As it turns out, we might have the opportunity to see this happen soon in our culture, much like the sin of chattel human slavery plagued our nation for much of its early life, so the stain of abortion has plagued our country for decades. And a verified majority opinion from the Supreme Court calling for the repealing of the precedent set by Roe v. Wade was recently leaked. The Supreme Court ruling on Roe v. Wade has been used by millions upon millions upon millions of women to have doctors murder their own children in the womb. And that might be overturned. This is a modern picture of the mass twisting of generational sin. The sins of previous generations in leading women to believe that state-sanctioned murder of their children is their God-given right is opposite to the design that God gave them. The wombs that were meant to fill the earth with children are now death row prison cells with their mothers paying the executioner. And just like Isaac, they look to the generation above and say, Mom did it. Grandma did it. It all turned out just fine. All while joyfully sending their own children to the grave. 
or rather a sterile dumpster behind a building that your taxes and my taxes paid for. We must grieve deeply and learn from the sins of the past generations. We must. If and when this wicked decree of Roe v. Wade is overturned, Christians must actively participate in any way legally possible to stop the slaughter of the unborn in our states. We cannot be satisfied with simply limiting the amount of murdered children. We must work to save every one of them. Learn from the sinful generation before you and walk not in their ways. That brings us to our second application. Repent in front of the generation after you. One of the greatest gifts that we can give the next generation is to model repentance in front of them. Not a single one of us is perfect. Yet because of the saving grace of Jesus Christ and his sacrifice to cover the cost of our sins, we have been given the Holy Spirit who empowers us to obey him. And that's wonderful news. We don't have to keep sinning. See, we still mess this up. We will fail to learn from the sins of the past generations. We will fail just like them. And many times in the exact same ways. But we can turn away from those sins in repentance. By the power of the Holy Spirit, we can break the chain of generational sin. Maybe dad beat you growing up, and now you have kids, and you never understood. But man, that anger sure comes up quick. Maybe you need to hear this. You don't have to be like your dad. And when you are sinfully angry, you know what you can do? Repent. Repent in front of your kids. Tell them you are sorry for the ways that you have sinned against them. Let them see you fight against your sin. To the spiritual generation that's following you, be honest about your sin. Be honest about your repentance. Be humble and let them see it. I'm telling you from personal experience and personal interaction on both sides of that, that there is little that you can do that will be more powerful in someone's life than to model what true repentance looks like. Now, I know, I know that this has been heavy. We've seen that faith affects generations. We've seen that sin wrecks generations. But our passage, it actually doesn't stop with two movements. You have a bonus one. Sorry, note takers. If you pay careful attention, there has been a third one here all along. So for movement number three, we have the Lord redeems generations. We've spent this morning looking at this comparison between Isaac and Abraham, and it might feel like this is just an odd mix of things together on one passage. Moses starts by setting the context to draw our attention back to the sins of Abraham. He ends this section with the sinfulness of Isaac, but the thing that ties it all together is not the way that these two generations affect each other. It's how the Lord is redeeming them both. See, when God calls Isaac to remember Abraham, what does he say? 
Hey, Isaac, do you remember all the terrible things your father has done? No. He says to remember his faithfulness, his obedience. And this is how Hebrews interprets this as well. Abraham's faithfulness was counted to him as righteousness. See, Abraham, he had faith in the promises to come, the fulfillment of the covenant of God. And he may not have known all of the details yet, but he understood the end, that God was making a people for himself in the earth. And and he was using Abraham's family to do that. So when Abraham believed in the promise, he was actually believing in the future fulfillment of those promises. He was believing in the, the fulfillment of Christ Jesus. And because of that faith, Yahweh, he does not look back at Isaac's father and say, be like dad, but maybe do a little better. No, Abraham's faith was sufficient because of who his faith was truly in. And even though Abraham's sin, it had effects that went beyond his generation. The Lord is working out his plan of redemption through him, and now he is working it out through Isaac. And this is kind of ironic because sometimes the worst people in the stories are not the pagan kings and rulers like Abimelech. It's the people of God. Yet God chooses the worst people to work in and through. And that should give us great hope because we are just like them. See, just like Abraham and Isaac believed in the fulfillment of God's promise to come, so we see it fulfilled in Jesus Christ thousands of years after them and thousands of years before us. And because of this faith, we are made sons and daughters of God. Not because we did great things, but despite our evil hearts and actions. We are being conformed to the image of Christ who lived perfectly. Romans 8, 29 says, For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he, being Jesus, might be the firstborn among many brothers. See, it took Jesus' perfect life, reflecting his perfect Father in heaven, to fulfill the role that we never could. Perfection was demanded, and Jesus achieved this on our behalf. And now, through the work of his blood on the cross, his resurrection from the dead, his authority over all things from the right hand of his Father in heaven, and the indwelling of the Holy Spirit in us, we too are being made like him. This is cause to rejoice, church. The Lord has not left us to our sin. And this is not simply salvation from the punishment of our sin, but he is ridding us of it. So how should we respond to this good news? How can we apply this truth? First, forgive the sins of others. It is one thing to repent of our sins in front of the next generation and to look to the faithfulness of the past. But what do we do beyond learning from their mistakes? We should follow the examples of our Heavenly Father. When they repent, we must forgive. This is really hard to do. And I get that. 
But if they have turned from their sinfulness and asked for forgiveness, we must be willing to forgive them. Maybe you have work to do in your own heart before that can really happen. Maybe you've allowed bitter roots to grow deep. But if God has been willing to forgive me of all the things that I have done, and he is king, which he is, then I must obey his rules. Regardless of my personal preference or discomfort, I must forgive. And with the help of the Holy Spirit, I believe that we can. For our second application here, we turn inward. Rejoice and be rid of sin. Christians, we believe what the Scripture says about us. And we must believe that. You do not have to keep on sinning. You can become more like Christ. He is the perfect image of his Father in heaven. And though we can't reach perfection in this life, in fact, we are guaranteed it in our coming resurrection. So we can strive even now to rejoice. We can work together with the Holy Spirit to be rid of the sins in our own lives. Maybe that's you for the first time today. Maybe you're not a Christian. But let me tell you, you really can be rid of it. Whatever thing that is ailing you in your soul, whatever bitterness towards God you have in your heart, whatever doubt you have that is drawing you away from Him, you can repent of that. You can turn away from your sin and join the household of God. Leave behind the sins of your past, of your fathers, your mothers, and all others. Have faith and take on the righteousness of Christ instead. Become a son of the living God. And God will be faithful to his word, just as he was with Abraham, and just as he is here with Isaac. Your faith will be credited to you as righteousness, and your sins will be wiped clean by the blood of Christ. O oh, church, that we would long for the day when we, being fully conformed to the image of Christ, will no longer remember the sins of the past, when it will be spoken of us and our Heavenly Father, like Father, like Son. Let's pray.